Today's verse comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, and you can follow along in your program if you like. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual, hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray together as we look at God's word. Let's pray. God, we trust that your promises are true, that you inhabit your word, that your spirit makes it come alive to us, and that we really can hear from you in our souls. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray that you would penetrate our hearts, change our lives, and that you would glorify your son Jesus in this time. We really want that. Please do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Like it or not, and for better or for worse, children imitate their parents. For better or for worse, and like it or not, parents, children imitate you. Uh, just a couple days ago, Elena uh, had been running around outside, working up, a little bit of a higher temperature, and when she came inside, panting a little bit, I asked her, Elena, are you sweating, sweetie? Are you sweating, Elena? And she said, yes, I'm doing like daddy. If you are wondering about the laughter, you'll understand in a few minutes. Last night, actually, uh, 
we came home after being out for uh, being out for a few hours, and uh, we had actually left open a few windows, as I'm sure many of you did. Uh, such a beautiful day, get a good breeze going on in the home, and such a nice day. I, when we got home, I noticed that I had left pretty much all the windows wide open, and some of them, of course, being reachable uh, at ground level. And without even thinking, I exclaimed something. Not, nothing too bad. But was a little startled when I heard Elena repeating exactly what I had said. Daddy, what? Children imitate their parents. Even when their parents' example might be flawed, might be limited, it's in their nature. In fact, they're called to do that. It's the nature of a family, parenthood, and childhood. But what if that parent's example were perfect? Would we not say, yes, imitate them? Would we not say, copy your daddy? Copy your mommy. Be like him. Be like her. What if there is, in fact, a spiritual heavenly father who is perfect and who is worthy of our imitation, who loved us so in all of our weakness and our flaws, in all of our soul infection with our sin and selfishness, who gave up everything that he had in his son to judge him that we might not be judged but be forgiven. To be set free from the condemnation and the wrath of God by his grace. And not only that, but then to be brought into his family as beloved children. To be cared for and esteemed and loved and prized. And then sent out on mission full of the dignity of God our Father, making more of this world a clear reflection of him, not just in ourselves, but in everyone and everything. What if such a God did exist? The Apostle Paul says he does. And he says, in short, copy this God. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Literally, it says, imitate God. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, the love of God is the model. It shows us how to do it, but it's also the motor, not just the model. It gives my heart the power and the desire and the strength to love like him. God loved with a self-giving love, with a self-sacrificing love, a dying love. And he says, you too. Go and do likewise. 
If you have received the blessings and the benefits of this infinitely sacrificial love, you too sacrifice and love. Dearly beloved, do you know this love? Has it compelled you to love like this? This is what the Apostle Paul is bringing to us in this passage. And he breaks it down into specific and concrete ways in which he calls us to love sacrificially. And there's so much going on in this passage, we're just going to draw out three quick arenas or applications for this sort of sacrificial love that we find in this passage. And it's these three, sacrificial sex, sacrificial singing, sacrificial submission. Let's look at each of those. First, sacrificial sex. Mm. Verse 3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because they are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. The apostle is inviting us to tackle in our lives and our hearts with the grace of the gospel all kinds of of sexual sin. The word translated sexual immorality, it refers to action, sexual intercourse outside of the context of the covenant of marriage. But Paul doesn't start there. He also goes not just to actions, but the way we talk. He talks about obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, even being flippant about something that God cares so deeply as a glorious gift to his people. And he includes also even our thoughts and our desires. He refers to greed or also what could be translated covetousness. Wanting something or someone that doesn't belong to you. It's not just your actions, it's what goes on in your heart. And maybe already you're saying to yourself, oh no, here we go again. Christians getting all worked up about sex. Slapping down the rules, telling us what we can and cannot do, and with whom. What's the big deal about this? What's interesting is that the Apostle Paul is actually speaking into a societal context in Ephesus that is so very close to our own. They had a thriving religious center there in the city, a temple to the Greek goddess Diana that had a lot of sexual practices tied in together with people's relationships. Where there, just like here today, people believed that sex was simply pleasure shared between two consenting adults. And the Bible presents to us a different sort of picture, which helps us to understand that Paul is not simply putting down arbitrary rules and just trying to ruin your weekend fun. This is what he's trying to say, that the Bible's view is that sex was designed to be a part of oneness that is shared out of two people that come together in marriage. And that in the, the safety and the security of promises that are made, of a lifelong commitment, of whatever it is that you show me of yourself, 
And whatever I see or experience of you in your nakedness, morally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, I'm not going to run away. And in the context of that security, that two people take the risk of love, of making themselves completely vulnerable to each other, not only physically, not only emotionally, but also financially, spiritually, in their decisions, in every part of life. So that the giving and taking of sex becomes a part of sacrificial love because sex, not only physical acts, but also the emotions and the spiritual components of it is meant to be a sacrifice of one's heart and life to another person. You see, the real problem with sexual sin is that it's selfish. It's that you're trying to take a component of a person's humanity and consume it and leave the rest out because it's inconvenient or incompatible or not what I want, not here, not now. Where whether physically or simply emotionally, we treat people as if they are personal blow-up doll. It's narcissistic and it's dehumanizing. Do you understand the way the Bible says it and puts it to us? Its vision of the wholeness of our humanity is that if you indulge in a piece of a person's body, even in your mind, you also owe them your heart. You also owe them your mind, your money, your decisions, your life, your future. You owe the rest of the package of life coming together in oneness so that if you're refusing to give them what's in fact due to them, you're not just committing selfishness, you're committing an injustice. Lust takes, love gives, and dies and serves and sacrifices. And so the Apostle Paul here is not only explaining what is in fact broken and sinful in the sight of God, he's also therefore inviting us to a more glorious experience of this gift that God has given us in sex. Because far from the way that Christians too often portray it, what the Bible has before us is not a lower view, but a higher view, a higher value of the glory and the power of sex. And when we break that vision and break God's basic law of love in our humanity and our exchange of relationship, we're told here by Paul that the punishment for sexual self-centeredness is in fact God's wrath. Yeah, it culminates in the final day of judgment. You understand the way the Bible talks about judgment is that it actually begins right here and right now. In, in the form of fragmented and unfulfilled relationships. See, you didn't want to connect all yourself with all of a real person and so you will get exactly what you asked for. 
fragmented relationships, a fragmented heart, an inability to truly give and truly receive, you're alone. And even when you want to love people truly, you're no longer able to. You're so self-centered that all you're left with is yourself. And that, dear friends, is judgment indeed. But what if, what if there is a God who, unlike you and me, didn't use you as a tool for his self-indulgence, didn't treat you like an object and then discard you? What if there's a God who didn't objectify you but humanized you, restored your humanity? What if there's a God who didn't hold back but gave all of himself that he might be one with you? and with me, who sacrificed everything for you, who loved you, who gave you his heart, who gave you his intimacy, who therefore made you his children, his family, more than that, the Bible says, his spouse. What if you know this sort of God? Will it not then start to change your heart and to say, I want relationships where I am all in? And where I'm asking that the person across from me is also all in, all in. Because I know and I've been transformed by a God who has been and never will be anything but a God all in. And so the apostle says, not even a hint. Not even a hint of sexual sin is to be upon you and your actions, your words, your thoughts, and your desires. But you see, if you're encountering a God like that, it's a joy to be like him. A joy to be and to love like daddy. Number two, we have not only sacrificial sex, but also sacrificial singing. Sacrificial singing, verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Of course, on one level, the apostle in passing is saying, look, stop getting wasted. It's there. And of course, for those of you who actually have a problem with alcohol addiction, by God's mercy, please get help. Don't mean to make light of it. Stop getting drunk, Paul says. Why? Well, notice how he compares drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. And here's part of the point that he's making, that everything that we're trying to get from the bottle, freedom from fears, happiness, comfort, release, everything we're trying to get from that, we were meant to get from God himself. And he supplies it with no limit. You see, excess alcohol isn't just poisonous to your liver, it's poisonous to your soul. When you're trying to fill your life with things, anything, even good things like wine, which can be corrupted when we treat them like God. And we can do that with just about anything. In fact, the better and more powerful gift they are, the more we're likely to twist it and to treat it like a God to us. Wine is like that. Sex is like that, but back to wine. Instead, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with 
the Spirit. And you say, well, in what way is filling, getting filled with the Spirit, whatever that means, like or unlike being drunk on wine? Well, understand the nature of alcohol, if you've studied this or if you understand it just on the street, it's a downer, it's a depressant, right? The nature of alcohol is that it, it dulls your senses, it makes you less aware of things, especially your problems, which is exactly why we're so drawn to it sometimes. And someone says, well, doesn't faith do that? Sort of dull our senses to our problems? And the answer is actually no. God's spirit actually makes us more aware of our problems. It actually does. It makes us more tuned in with reality and of life. We see that in verse 15 where Paul says, very, be very careful how you live. Inspect your life, not as unwise, but as wise which is another way of saying engage every part of life, not just the moral stuff, but everything where you're having to exercise wisdom to know how to make good decisions, how to exercise judgment, how to live fully before the face of God. But it's also here talking about the importance of being aware of the problem of your sin. You're more aware of your problem of sin. All from verse eight, all the way down, all this talk about being in touch with the darkness of your heart. Understanding that sin in and of itself, apart from Jesus, disqualifies you from an inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Reminding us that you were once darkness, you were once filled with the fruitless deeds of darkness, you were dead. You become more aware of your sin. And yet at the same time, God's spirit makes you more aware of God's provision. Not just aware of your problem, but also aware of God's provision in Jesus. This is the Spirit's job. We were told this in Ephesians 1 that Paul prays that you might get more of the Spirit so that you would know Jesus better. In Ephesians 3, he prays again that by the power of the Spirit, Christ might make himself more fully at home in your life. More of Jesus abounding through every pore of your soul and your skin where you might have, by the power of the Spirit, a deeper grasp of the ingraspable, infinite love of Jesus. In other words, that we would be so saturated with the reality of Christ and his grace that Jesus would dominate your thoughts, your feelings, Paul says, so that considering the depth of your sin and the heights of God's provision in Christ, to see that he has met all your needs and more. That your life then would explode with song. The Spirit makes you more aware of your problems with honesty, more aware of God's provision in Christ, and therefore more awash in joy. And so the apostle says, be filled with the Spirit, verse 19, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where your life is oriented towards God with gratitude and joy, you're thanking God always and then he says, you're making music in your heart. Friends, if you are coming to know Christ or if you've known him for a long time, do you have a song in your heart? 
Have you experienced the joy of forgiveness that makes you want to write lyrics about how free you are and how you've been rescued by the blood of your Savior? Do you have something in your heart that you almost want to say, words alone can't quite get it? I need a tune to carry it, to give it life, to let it soar. This is what the apostle means when he says, sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord. This is what the Spirit gives. It's a joy unspeakable because of what Christ has done for you. Are you hungry for that? Have you tasted it? But here's the point. It's a joy that you don't want to just keep to yourself. It's a joy you want to share. It's a sacrificial joy, if you will. It's sacrificial singing. The apostle says in verse 19, don't just sing in your heart, but speak to one another with song. Invite people into the joy that you have in Jesus, which means to apply it on one literal level that when you sing, we're going to sing in a few minutes. We just sang a couple songs a few minutes ago. When you sing, you sing not just individually, but as a body corporately, sing in such a way as to bless others around you. Which might mean some of us might need to sing a little louder. I'm not about to say some of us might need to sing a little bit quieter. Not going to go there. But understand that you are singing not only to God, you are singing to one another. As it says in Psalm 91, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. This too is an act of love to fellowship in your singing. I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but my faith is often strengthened when I overhear in community the voices of people that are singing like they really mean it. Or when they're believing something that I can tell they believe that I ought to believe, but I don't yet believe. And where I need to, in song, latch onto their faith and say, carry me along, brother and sister. And hopefully by the end of that chorus, I too am singing with all my heart. Sing in such a way as to bless others around you because you love one another in your joyful singing. But even more broadly, are you inviting people into the joy of your salvation? Are you expressing it with words and with song? Are you sharing not just the content of your testimony, but the tears and the raised hands of your stories as well? Are you bringing people along in the joys and the sorrows of life so that you can say, this person knows me not because they've read the book of my life, but they've heard the soundtrack of my life. That's the way community is meant to be shared. Love in the gospel is meant to be exchanged one to another. Okay, lastly, sacrificial submission. We'll close with this. 
sacrificial sex, singing, and lastly, submission. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul is talking about, very simply, about loving people, loving people by giving up power. Loving people by giving up power. And let me just do it simply here, like this. What does it look like? What does this mean practically? Submitting to one another, loving sacrificially like this, submitting to one another means putting other people's needs before my own, even when I really, really do have needs. Submitting to one another means letting someone else get credit for something I have done and rejoicing that they might share in that glory and joy. Submitting to one another means dying to my need to be thanked or recognized when I serve. Submitting to one another means putting the needs of another group, racial, class, or otherwise before my own, that they might be honored and lifted up in community. Submitting to one another means refusing to be preoccupied with me all the time. In other words, sometimes submitting means listening well. Submitting my thoughts so that the only name and face in my head is not mine and me. Submitting to one another means supporting decisions that are made collectively in the community by others and supporting them from the heart, not just keeping my mouth shut publicly and then complaining at home in my head. Because if I'm always saying, you know, that's not how I would have done it or decided it, I still have an insurrectionist heart. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the little key, the little phrase is right there at the end of the verse. Do it out of reverence for Christ. Because the story of the good news of his love for you, his sacrificial love for you, is his self-submission in order to save you. Jesus didn't come to accumulate power. Jesus came to give it up. Jesus came to give his life to save those who were powerless to save themselves. This is the good news of the Christian faith, the story of a God who laid down all power, the God of glory who made himself your slave. Which is why in John 13, Jesus made sure we had a visual of this, where with his own disciples, he took the literal physical posture of a slave, stripping himself down, getting a foot wash basin, cleaned their feet, and said, this is what I will do for you in cross form, giving up power, submitting myself and my own dignity and glory for love for you. Jesus in Philippians 2, who's described as the one who, though equal in power and glory with God, did not consider that something worth to be grasped and held onto. Yet he laid it all down, took the form of a servant, a slave, came in the form of flesh, died on a cross so that he might have you in me and love us and change our hearts that in turn we too might love one another like that. But it starts with submitting ourselves to the God who submitted himself to you. What a mystery. 
to say, God, I, I have to receive your submission. I, I have to be cleansed by you. I have to be washed over by your blood, Jesus. Your submission is what I needed for my salvation. And when that starts to touch down in your heart and soul, then you start to find grace and power to love one another like him. To lay down your life, to give it all up. I want to be like that. I want to do that together with you. Being imitators of God. Walking in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Let's pray together. We're asking for your spirit that you would help us now because we're powerless, God, even to obey this, even to follow this, even to believe this, even to receive this. We're powerless. We need your spirit. So thank you that you give him to us in full measure. Now bear fruit, Lord Jesus. Love for you and love for one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.